Hi, welcome to the Artificial Intelligence, Machine Learning and Data Science Weekly Podcast. My name is Kwan Hong, or you can call me KH. In this show, I'll be talking to AI, ML and data science practitioners around the region. In each episode, I will dive into relevant and interesting AI, ML topics, where you get to know more about topics ranging from AI, ML adoption, best practices, and tips and tricks to be a better AI, ML data science practitioner. Hi, welcome to another episode of AI, ML, and Data Talk podcast. In today's episode, I'm super excited to have Dr. Fairoza Amira Binti Hamza, who is a senior AI engineer at Torum Technology Center as a guest for the show. Hi, Fairoza, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dr. Poo, thank you for inviting me to the podcast. Welcome, welcome. So as, as normally, uh, as normal, uh, for all my guests, I will actually ask the guests to actually you know, give a self-introduction about her. Uh, yourself so maybe you can talk about your childhood and then something about your education and then also a, a brief uh, background of your career path that what leads you to become a senior AI engineer at Torum Technologies in Europe. Okay so yeah I actually graduated from Japan. I started my study in Japan from a degree master to PhD uh, non-stop and my previous study wasn't really related to AI because we are doing the traditional image processing. And then at the last, I think, final year of PhD, when the field, essentially my previous study was in image compression and the field started to grow to the AI, to the deep learning. They started to use deep learning in image compression. Then I started to learn on machine learning, deep learning, back again at the final day of PhD. Unfortunately, unable to publish a paper during the PhD, but after that, after graduated, when I joined the academy, I managed to publish a paper on deep learning actually. And then, and then during my self-study, I learned a lot. And then after that, I also learned that nowadays people really want, I think the companies really want someone that know AI. That's the most important. So the market is there. And then I switched from MATLAB to Python. I didn't say that MATLAB is useless. It's very useful for my PhD dissertation. But now, because MATLAB, you need to pay. So just go for Python. And then after that, I become a, an assistant professor in Kyoto College of Graduate Studies for Informatics Japan. Uh, I'm actually the pioneer that teaching Python and teaching AI in that uh, university to the postgrad students that are re- usually majoring in business. And then after that, I come back to Malaysia during the COVID, actually two days before the lockdown. And yeah, because of COVID, right? And then after that, I joined the Corona Tracker and then like you, uh, establishing the Women in AI Malaysia chapter during the those days that I didn't have any work to do for one month of career break. And then after that, I joined machine, I joined Ventance as machine learning engineer. That's my first experience in the industry. And then after that, I get to come back to my hometown in Moa and becoming a data scientist, which I lead the data science team uh, in ST Microelectronics. I'm the first data scientist. And when I uh, resigned uh, two months ago, one month ago, I did last month. And then actually we have a team of three. And then like internationally, we have about 10 to 12 people in the team. And then and then now I am in the Torum Technologies Number High as a senior AI engineer where every field is different. In Torum, we manage the social media, so the data is much more fun to see. <laughs> Interesting. So uh, I think uh, I, I'm also an ex-graduate of a uh, uh, PhD at uh, Japan University. I'm actually graduated from uh, Nagoya Institute of Technology. 
So uh, it's, it's, it's actually very fun to actually you know, get to know people who actually graduated from uh, Japan. I have one question. You, so you actually studied from degree to master to PhD all at the same university, which is Nagaoka University of Technology. So what makes you want to come back to Malaysia? <laughs> okay, this is a very interesting question. <laughs> okay, what makes me want to come back to Malaysia? Okay, uh, simply to say it's because like I miss Malaysian foods because, you know, during the COVID times, I think like I, because we did the forecasting, right, on how COVID is going to be. So at that time, I know that I'm not going to be able to come back to Malaysia twice a year, like like I used to be. So that's why, oh, it's time to come back. So that's why I returned back to uh, Malaysia. And then the next thing is, before I come back, I already researched on how the data science, uh, AI, machine learning, uh, technology landscape in Malaysia. So I made a promise in myself if I manage to get something, uh, means like a very nice uh, return uh, to Malaysia. And then like if I think like it's the time, then I will just return. And basically, I am the scholarship recipient uh, from Malaysia government, uh, not the JPE. Uh, so it's time to giving back to the community. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, interesting. I, I actually, uh, okay, it's, it's a normal uh, homework for me as a podcaster. Normally when I invite a guest, I actually will dig through all the all the profile in LinkedIn. So I actually found that you are actually a Mara Education uh, Foundation, YPM Scholarship uh, recipient. So interesting. Yeah, so I, I think my question is, since you're, you're interested in AI, I'm sure the AI scene in Japan is much more sophisticated and much more advanced as compared to Malaysia. But I'm sure if you want to dabble with AI, I'm sure that if you would stay on in Japan, you probably have much more opportunity. Or do you see Malaysia has an emerging country in the AI that you can see that you can actually have you can actually learn more and contribute more in that in that area? Okay, the difference between Japan and Malaysia is Japan they focus on building the machine learning model. Means like they are very good in. ML engineering, I think that they rarely have a job, uh, I think like there's not really so much job posts on data scientists, but they have a lot of more job posts on machine learning engineer because they focus more on machine learning engineering, like you building a model, you do this kind of algorithm, so if you want to become an ML engineer, then you need to be very good in your algorithms, lah, in your DSE, data structure algorithm. But in Malaysia, most of the job post is all about data scientists. Even as an AI engineer, we will start with data science. So I think like, yeah, because we... In, in, in our country, we are still, we are not really a country that is go for R&D. So most of the data that we have in our country is quite different from what we have in Japan. And then Japan is very traditional country some more. So when they want to adopt the AI, I think like there's so many backlashes here and there like if you are in a big, very big MNC company. Unless you are in a very big MNC software company or Japanese company that is really into into software like Yahoo, I have one friend that actually a data scientist in Yahoo Japan. So this kind of company they really open lah. But then if you are still in a traditional company, they still doesn't really know what AI can do. <laughs> okay, I think a lot of uh, listener will be surprised that uh, Yahoo still around, but actually Yahoo in Japan is very big. Isn't it? Yahoo yes, in Japan actually Yahoo in Japan belongs to SoftBank. <laughs> and people still people are not googling, eh? they they use Yahoo Japan to Google in Japan. Mm. 
Yeah, so it's actually quite established in Japan. It's one of the country that uh, people are still using Yahoo. That's <laughs> very different from other countries. Okay, uh, I, I'm actually quite uh, uh, interested to find out more as you as you come as you came back to Malaysia. You actually work in uh, this uh, SE microelectronics uh, as a data scientist, uh, and then you said that, that that was one of the first job that you actually you know gotten into data science, where your PhD mainly focusing on this image. Uh, compression, but then you actually able to learn up data science, uh, Python yourself and AI uh, machine learning by yourself. Then you actually come and work in, in this field. So what are the challenges that you face and what are the interesting projects that you can actually share with us? Okay, ST Microelectronic, very interesting company. So it's really opens up my eyes a lot because uh, actually previously I worked in another company also that is a marketplace company and I'm not the first machine learning engineer there so I have a senior that actually guide me through one by one but then when I come to ST Microelectronics I'm the first one so this is my first task that I need to become a data scientist and to be able to lead a data science team and I need to train the, the engineers to be able to understand data science and some of them need to be able to code in Python as well so ST Microelectronics is a manufacturing company, so we don't really have any software house. Uh, like, okay, first time when you come, you will ask, okay, where is the data? So the data is very, very, you know, isolated somewhere and you cannot just take it easily like when you are in a software house. So you need to go through a lot of channels to get the data. That's the first thing. And then the data is very messy and you don't really understand what is the data about because you are not from the manufacturing, you are not the semiconductor background. So you don't really understand what is this data. And then that is the first challenge, uh, the first and second challenge. The third challenge is that you don't even have a server to host the product of your machine learning model. <laughs> so this is very interesting. So what we do, what I did, I think, at that time, I just host the ML model inside my laptop, 8 gig RAM of laptop. And then after that, put everything, uh, the data, into the SharePoints and then schedule the task using the Windows Task Scheduler and put it up in the Power BI and monitor from there. So my architecture is basically Power BI, SharePoints, my own laptop. <laughs> Very interesting, right? So I think that after a few years, end of few years, few months, and then we managed to get one server actually that is a very powerful server, RTX uh, 8000 times 2 GPU with 512 gig RAM. And then, because we don't really have a server for a data scientist to do, so this server is being shared by 20 data scientists from five branches. And I am the IT admin of that because our IT admin doesn't know how to configure a data science server. <laughs> so that's, that's very interesting. So I get an experience to become an IT administrator of a Linux PC. <laughs> so this is a new uh, thing to me as well. And then uh, from there, from there, we managed to do a lot of image processing and video processing tasks. But most of the data in manufacturing, they don't really have image data. They're mostly in the tabular data. Even the tabular data also, you still need the GPU. And then, and then after that, after that, we don't, that one is just like, we don't really manage, manage to able actually to post an app start because we just serve it as a development server. So then there will be another question to build the prod server. And that's how actually uh, the company itself, they started to explore on a lot of no-code tools. And then I think few months uh, before I resigned, they explore on the data IQ. So they, they buy off the data IQ. 
and then all the data scientists uh, use the data IQ as the tools uh, to develop their machine learning model. Okay. Yeah, sounds interesting, isn't it? Because I think uh, this is a really work, uh, really real life experience uh, where you actually join a company that the company is not ready for uh, for you to, uh, to, to actually apply all the knowledge in data science because it doesn't have all the facility or data ready for you. But by who by a crew, you have to produce something. So I think that your experience is something uh, really, really valuable for people to join a company where you really need to use bio resources that you have and then you know, build something out. And then once you build something up, you manage to showcase to your, you know, to your, to your company that this is worth doing. Then you see later they they are they're willing to invest some money to buy your server. <laughs> I yes, think that's something correct. very important. Yes, that, that's how I learned. That's why when I come to Torum Technologies Number right here, that when I first start, when they give me a task like a user story, they want to build an AI feature, something like that. So I started very small. I just give them a very nice POC first. Okay, this is how you can do it. And after that, then we can discuss later how we want to deploy, what kind of investment that you need. So first of all, give up something. Give something first. <laughs> yeah, because in any company, ROI is very important. You cannot just simply ask people to invest money where you take it. They don't even see anything yet. Yes, very important. So I think as a good data scientist, you because they do not some most of the companies do not understand what is data science. So if you have no POC, they cannot see what you are you bringing to them. So I think by showing like a small POC that you have done, and then you convince them, then they understand the ROI. Then I think further investment will, be, will they they will they will yes. willing to invest into. Okay, that's a very interesting uh, experience. Uh. So the, the next thing I, I was actually quite uh, curious to, to, to know is, uh, like you said, uh, you actually started from one, then now you have so many. How, how do you manage so many data scientists under one, uh, this, uh, is it under one department? Or do you break down the, 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 the group of data scientists based on you know, maybe project base or, or, or specialization? How do you manage this uh, group? Okay, so basically, yeah, when I was in the ST Microelectronics, I don't really have a direct subordinate. I managed to get direct subordinates, I think, three months or four months before I resigned. Before this, it was just a team members. So the role of a data scientist in that company is not really a data, not really, you know, 50% data scientist, 50% as a product manager as well. So you need to manage the, all the AI projects. And this AI project doesn't really involve all data scientists. You need to have a lot of engineers on board. So, wow, well, it's very difficult. So at first, I was like very confused of everyone roles. What is IE? What is product engineer? You know, like all of this is a very new terms to me. But at the end, uh, when I think like after two, three months, when I put up all of the plan and everything, so I... I actually split them into several groups. Like the first one will be a data collector group. And after that, the data labeler group or data wrangler group. And then after that, those who are building the machine learning group. And then those who are actually uh, going to the, to the deployment, which is the system development. And then from there, I have a multiple meetings with them and to make sure that all works run through very well. Run well, that's the most important actually. So, that's the skill that I pick up there, lah. Product manager, come data scientist. <laughs> do do you do you work in an agile environment? Do you have daily setup or do you have a scrum meeting, whatever? We don't really have a scrum meeting. I think like when I talk to them about agile, no one understands what is agile. <laughs> That's the most important. So I was like, okay, 
So they don't really understand Agile. Oh, it's okay. Like, then I will do the Agile by myself. But I just call up a meeting once a week. I didn't call it as a daily scrum because no one knows what is daily scrum. So we just say like project update. Uh, every group project update. And then after that, I will compile everything and put up to the to the next week. Okay, this is the update or what, what we need to do. And after that, what kind of resources that you need. So it's not really agile. It's not really waterfall, but it's something that, mm, it's something that, you know, we, we need to make sure that project runs well. But then using the term of engineer, lah, semi-con company uh, terms. Okay, sounds interesting. Um, so, so what, how long is the duration of a project? Do you have like, do you need to produce something by quarterly or do you have a certain fixed uh, duration period for the project? Okay, because I actually a project manager for multiple projects. There is a local level and there is a, I think, uh, international level. So the local level usually is a very short and simple one. Like our COVID uh, dashboard project where we have a lot of cases then we need to mitigate the COVID. At that time, we just put, we just use 18 working days only, which is one month. And we managed to get everything up. And then there's also another, a lot of like other projects that actually require three months uh, to six months to get the POC. And then there's another big project, the multi-country multi project is the most difficult one. So usually it will take about one year. Even when I leave the company also, the project is still in a POC stage. It didn't move to the QA and the staging yet. Okay, interesting. So I think uh, to all the all the people out there who are listening, there's uh, there's many ways to actually manage a project. But actually, depending on the company, some company they they break it down by quarter. So every quarter they want to see some results. So I think <laughs> following how what's a normal company procedure, then you actually need to actually show something that uh, to the company some result at least, because that would be the how they actually manage the progress of the project. Yes. Okay. Um. At your current position as a senior AI engineer, what do you do as an AI engineer? Okay, so because we are a social spy company, you know, social spy means that we have we are a social we build a social media platform for a crypto enthusiast. So it means like those who really like into crypto, who want to talk about crypto, blockchain, whatsoever, they will become our social media uh, members. Lah. Means like they will post something like Facebook and whatsoever. So when I first come to this company, I am very actually, you know, happy to see that they are very open with the data. <laughs> means like they replicate the database and then they just tell me, okay, this is the stories that they want to make for the AI features. And I just dig around the data freely. Wow, this is very nice, seriously. <laughs> but at the same time, I need to learn a new query language. Lah. So it was like, it's a very new learning experience for me as well. But then, but then, uh, so what we are going to do now, we are going to build a recommendation engine. That's the most important because we are, me and one of my colleagues, we are the first uh, AI engineer in the company. So they are they already two years in this, in the market, but they don't really have like uh, AI or automation. Everything is manual. You have someone actually to uh, curate the content for you to actually understand what is the most, uh, the most uh, recommended content for you or something like that so this is the first task and we have a lot of tasks in the pipeline especially like to predict and to focus on you know the next project is going to boom up like what do you think about this kind of like blockchain uh kind of currency something like that i'm very new to this field so the reason i joined this company is because i want to understand more on this crypto and blockchain it's very new and i don't understand at all so it's the time to understand everything <laughs> 
especially now there's a yeah crypto winter now. <laughs> yes, correct. <laughs> okay, so I think you have more time. You can spend more time. If not, if uh, during the crypto boom, I think there are people who are just asking you come show me result. You show me more, yes, more result. Yes. More result. Crypto winter is a time to for you to do the research and for you to forecast actually what what is the next cryptocurrency that is going to boom. So this is much more interesting, lah. I would say. How does the I see one of the projects that you're doing, you're doing some sort of recommendation engine. Are you using any open source libraries? Yes, of course. Of course. Yeah, because currently we are still working with the uh, English language, right? So, of course, like we are using Spurred, NLP key, all of this, you know, NLP stuff. Uh, I'm not really good at NLP actually. So, because my major is English. So, this is a very nice opportunity for me to understand NLP as well. So, after that, we need to go deep to the Chinese language, uh, Mandarin, I think, after this, and a lot of other languages as well. So, that's very nice. Uh, and then, yeah, of course, we use all the open sources uh, because why do you want to build something that's already there? Mm, that's the most important, as long as you get something up as soon as possible. Okay, so, so I think your for your case, most of your data is a form of uh, text data, text-based data. Yes, correct. Um, okay, I think in my, uh, I think two, two weeks ago, I was actually writing a panel discussion for AI. So one of the topics that was discussed is actually talking about, is there a risk using open source uh, libraries? Uh, do, do you think there's a risk of using open source libraries? Yes, there is a risk. Okay, I have actually, uh, I think like one of the company in Japan, they don't really like to use all these open sources because they said like we cannot control the package. And then like if the package changing, then, some, then suddenly we cannot deploy. But I think like that is the first risk, but the risk we can mitigate is actually we freeze uh, the package uh, version, right? So if you freeze the package version during deployment, so you don't have any problem on that. And then... Oh, another risk I think I don't know like people can hack I don't I don't think people can hack on the open source so for me there's not really a major problem of using open source yeah I think for your case the recommendation engine is not really something that, I mean there's a security issue there I think one of the concerns is uh, whenever you have open source uh, packages whatever you do, you do not know uh, what are the you know, vulnerability of that package because you don't know who is maintaining it and then you are actually dependent on the or people who are volunteer to maintain it. And I think there are a lot of cases uh, when their data breaches happen because of certain package has not been maintained for quite a long time and then people are starting to find that, that there's a lot of uh, loophole that they actually can penetrate and then hack into that software. I think that's one of the reasons. I'm not sure whether recommendation engine will have a risk but <laughs> I just, I'm just, uh, just uh, curious to see uh, what is your take on this open source, uh, especially on the risk side? Well, this is my first time actually listening to this. I never heard about this story actually. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> okay. Uh, next, uh, I'm also quite interested to know that uh, you also participated similar to my previous uh, guest, Hafiz Nasri. So both of you also work on the Corona Tracker. So maybe can you share some experience working on this project? Well, this is a very interesting story of Corona Tracker because I just joined for fun to understand the data science landscape in Malaysia and suddenly they appoint me to become the lead researcher for this project. I was like, okay, wow. <laughs> and then and then by hope of my crew, I need to make sure that our research is actually published somewhere. That and then the the you know, like everyone do a lot of hard work in the community and we need to make sure that we are being recognized. So that's how actually I also uh, get to know Hafiz Nazri. 
uh, and then virtually we never meet each other face to face after two years also. Uh, so and then and then our work, I think like the most uh, we will say like a very uh, proud work that we did is our paper is published in the bulletin of WHO and now being cited by more than 300 I think already 400 citations within two years and we are among the first at that time. I think I'm the one, you know, Japan style, very pushy and very punctual also. <laughs> so at that time when we started the meeting, I told them within 1.5 months, within two months, we need to publish this paper. Because the faster we publish, the faster that it's going to be cited and the faster it can be used to help others. So I pushed all of the team members. I think we have 15 team members at that time. So 1.5 months, we managed to get the first draft up. And then I just like, you know, uh, check it back again one more time. And after that, just submit to the bulletin of WHO and publish. Wow. You, sound, <laughs> you, you sounded like a normal PhD supervisor, pushing all the people like a postgraduate student. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you remember your sensei in Japan. Yes, yes. It's like that. It was like, oh, we have the deadline for the conference. You need to submit the paper by who or by group. <laughs> I always bring this story out when I was uh, studying my PhD in Japan and I only come back to Malaysia once, uh, once a year during Chinese New Year. So normally during Chinese New Year, I will tell my sensei that uh, I will come back for a month for Chinese New Year. Then every time without fail, my sensei will tell me, if you go back and if you have written the paper, send to me, I will review it for you. I was like, why would I want to go back to for Chinese New Year and write a paper? <laughs> I don't want to enjoy my Chinese New Year. So I always remember that, no? Hopefully my yeah. sensei. Oh. Hopefully my sensei is not listening. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my sensei is always like this. You want to go for one one month holiday, right? Okay, you finish write a paper first, you submit to me, then you go for holiday. Yeah, it's, it's the same thing. <laughs> I think I think whoever is listening to our podcast, if they're if they're really interested to or they're thinking of going to Japan for their postgraduate, they might think twice because this is what will happen to you. Yes, correct. <laughs> Okay, so uh, so let's talk about the Corona Tracker again. So, out of so many people in the team, how many percentage of the like like the, like you have a one a, a female contributor to the project? Okay, for I think that the research group that I actually we we in the research team that we have, I think we have about three to four. I think three to four female members out of the other guys lah. Uh, and then they are very well contributed. And then what do I really like about female and males? Males is very firm, like males do one thing at a time, okay, one thing at a time, but they really know what they want to do. Female is like this, they do multitasking and they beat around the bush, you know, something like that. But they have a lot of opinions. Uh, so it means like you have men that can really do job very well, very silent, but suddenly the job is done. And then you have a female that always critic, 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 but then the paper is going to become very good because you have this criticized female, something like that lah. So you are saying the female are more meticulous, uh, so because you can yes. see small small detail. Whereas the male, they are they are not so people not so white, not so vocal, but they actually do the work at the back. Yes. Then yes. you have a balanced team there. Then you will yes, have a team. yes. So I am actually the female that very meticulous. I put up. I was like, oh, your English is very bad. <laughs> 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 okay, let me let me rephrase your sentence. <laughs> <laughs> I think because they have no experience writing papers. Eh? Since you are both, you you graduate with PhD, you have I think you have more experience writing papers than them. Yes, yes, yes. But they are very good, lah. All of the team members, even though they cannot write the paper very well, but they give out a very nice. Review. Results. So that's how we managed to publish within 1.5 months. Okay, interesting. So looking at your background, you are actually very technical. 
So you actually graduated with a bachelor degree in electrical, electronic and image, uh, information engineering, same for your master. And then you have a doctor of engineering for the same. So you are coming from a very technical background. But looking at the overall picture of female, in, especially in the, this STEM area, which is science, technology, engineering, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics in Malaysia, there's not so many females. Why do you think it's like that? Ah, this is a very interesting story, actually. Okay, in Malaysia, you will see if in a computer science classes, software engineering classes, electrical engineering classes, you will have like 50-50, quite balanced, right? And like most females, they will go for medical. That's the most important that is Malaysia. Female will go for medic, bio, and then if they go for computer science, have la, someone with 50-50. But then if you go to mechanical engineering, the one that is very tough, you will have very, very nice female. Okay. And then, but in Japan, it's totally different. Uh, I believe you study in Japan also. In my class, we only have seven females out of 110 males. So that's very normal. And then, okay, but then in Japan, it's a very logic. La. You have very small female as a student. And then when you graduated, you work also, you have very less female in the technical field. But then in Malaysia, you have a lot of females. 50% of your classmates are females. But then when you work, you rarely see females. Why? Uh, this is a big why, right? <laughs> so from your perspective, of your why do you think that? Yeah, so after, I think after jumping into the career in, in Malaysia and then like talk with a lot of like female seniors, especially in women in AI, what I can see is that we have this leaky pipeline, la, meaning that all of these females, they try to find a job in the industry. They manage to get it somehow in the technical field. Some of them, maybe they don't really have a choice, so they go for the business field, admin field, or whatsoever, as long as they get a job. But then, but then, okay, it's the time they get married. And then, <laughs> get married and have like, you know, pregnant and give birth. And then these females in Japan, we have a very good support system, meaning that you will have one year maternity leave. And then after that, uh, but it's a pros and cons lah. When you have one year maternity leave, it's very difficult to come back also. But you have a very good rest. And then like, you know, a female, like, and then like the one that actually uh, paid the salary during the maternity leave is not the employer. So the employer doesn't feel so reluctant actually to employ this kind of female. But then in Malaysia, you only have two months maternity leave. Uh, they are going to increase it in one September uh, for 98 days. But still, the employer, the female, the male employer will feel quite reluctant to hire females because at the end of the day, when you get married and pregnant, you are going to waste my money two months or three months. I'm going to pay you for nothing, something like that. So this female usually will get, you know, like most of them, they will just give up in the middle. And then somehow we have the Asian culture that actually only male is able to work, uh, something like that. Male should provide and then the female stay at home. So this is all the Asian culture. So this kind of thing actually, the one that is happening when you see there's a lot of females that actually in the technical field, not really technical field, but the other field. But technical field is much more harder. Like, you know, if you're a programmer, of course, of course, like if you're training a model and suddenly your model stop training during the late night, so you still need to check your model, which is very difficult if you have a children at home. Uh, so so this is something I think that that is the main factor and some more like if you I think like if you in a meeting sometimes the male doesn't want to listen to the female 
because we speak different language i think <laughs> <laughs> what language do you speak <laughs> we we speak why what i we speak different language is like when i try to make sure that the male colleague try to understand i always say like this did you understand what i'm trying to say uh, and then they will say yes 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 i understand but i don't know whether they understand or not like i think like because female is always like they have a lot of things to say but they cannot you know make it straightforward like male uh like that <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, oh, you are very very, very generalized uh, try to generalize a lot of things for the female but i'm not sure whether it's a good thing or bad thing but i hear you i think uh, what you are saying there's uh, many factors that actually drive uh, that the low adoption of uh, or low of adoption of the uh, female in this uh, technology sector especially even though they have graduated in that field but because of different different factors like family factor cultural factor uh, that actually you no know, might not even uh, encourage them to actually join even though they have that uh, education background okay so as i was going through the the, the report by this uh, dos sm uh, department of statistics malaysia it says that the labor force particip participation rate LFPR for women in Malaysia, as in 2020, is still very low, which is only 55.3%, as compared to other countries like Singapore, which is 69.7%, and even Thailand is 66.8%. So this is not good for Malaysia because as a developed nation, uh, so the LFPR, the, this uh, labor force particip participation rate for female, it should be above 60%. So I think for Malaysia is still low because it's only 53.3%, 55.3%. So there's something that I think, I don't know, as a, as a female that you are contributing to, especially in this uh, AI field, I think there's uh, something that uh, maybe you can actually you know, uh, uh, comment that uh, what are things that you can do or maybe uh, as a in general what the female can do in Malaysia. Maybe like, maybe like do more communities, events, and then a drive uh, to know, like you said, you're working on the women AI. Yes, yes. I think the most important is support system. First of all, female really likes to talk. Really <laughs> likes to, you know, you don't have someone and to talk to, you know, this is the female nature. So that's why I think the support system is the most important. So that's why you can see a lot of organization in the world that surround around females. You know, like we have women in machine learning, we have women who code, we have women in tech, women in uh, girls tech. I think there's a lot of things, including the women in AI. Why? Because usually women, they need a support system and they need to have someone to talk to, someone that can understand them. So that's why actually when I first come back to Malaysia, I think like at first I think oh, we don't need to establish the women in AI in Malaysia. Women in Malaysia is very strong. Why do we need the women in AI? But suddenly when I come back, it was like, oh, it's not really like what I think. Malaysia is just like Japan. Uh, better than Japan a little bit lah. Uh, okay. <laughs> better than Japan a little bit. But still not until the level that actually uh, female and male is almost like the same. So that's why actually when I was in ST Microelectronics, I'm also the diversity, equity and inclusion champion there. So we actually uh, built up a lot of like, you know, uh, events. And of course, like what we did also the break the bias in STEM during the International Women's Day with 17 countries, I think, uh, around the world. And then we do the talk event about, okay, how to venture into STEM, what is the most important, why women should be in the STEM. And then there's a lot of reactions around the, around the world. Malaysia reaction is very nice. 
when I talk to the, I think like that one, I think most of the participants come from the SVP and MRSM student. So they are very energetic or they said they will go to the STEM in the future. But some of the countries, it's very rare to get people that really interested to STEM. Some more are female. It's like a, a, a girl's love to, to go into the STEM. Because they see STEM as a occupation for male. That's the most important. So it was like, okay, so we need to break the stereotype. That's the most important. And then the next thing is you need to know that, okay, STEM is not as difficult as you can think. And then even though you are not a technical person, you can still be a part of STEM. Like we in a tech field, right, in a software engineering, if you don't want to become a programmer, you can become a software tester. Mm. Or you can become a product manager. If you really like to talk, go for product management. <laughs> then you can talk all the time. Nine to six. <laughs> <laughs> okay, interesting. <laughs> so that is from my experience lah, because I've been a product manager. I did the event management as well. And then like I become a programmer also. Then after that, I just noticed that myself, even though I really like to talk, I don't want to become a product manager. Because for me, 9 to 6 talking non-stop is very stressful. I really like to work with the technical side as well. We need to like sit in front of the computer, look at the code, and try to think the logic. Uh, that is also <laughs> my passion. <laughs> Interesting. So I think, uh, like you said, that you you one of the things that you have done is actually you participate in quite a number of committee events. So what do you think of committees in Malaysia? As well as it's just similar to what I discussed in the previous uh, uh podcast show, uh, we talked about events, uh, committees, running a committees in, in Malaysia with the uh, Hafiz. So I think we have some problem running communities in Malaysia. So how about you from your perspective? Is there any difficulty or challenges running communities in Malaysia? Okay, the big challenge is to register legally under the rules. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we didn't register under the rules finally because it's very difficult. So we give up. And then uh, to make sure that your community is recognized and we have a lot of people want to join the community. But Malaysia is very open with the community, but we are not really active enough. If you ever heard about Machine Learning Tokyo, uh, it's a Japan community actually on Machine Learning. They are very, very active. They have like uh, monthly, weekly meetup. Every week is either online or offline. They read their paper in the new ribs together. That's very nice. But then, but then, okay, in Malaysia, we cannot do as advanced as Japan. If you ask people to come okay let's sit down together and read the new reads paper no one will come because no one will understand it's very bombastic i throw out these slides actually in the data science Malaysia group and everyone is like oh what is this it's too mathematics <laughs> okay fine so then then that's why i think like in malaysia we have a data science Malaysia. we have women in ai that is really friendly to the beginner because we know where it's us currently so if you want to go for the advanced one then you need to search for international, uh, like in machine learning, uh, the one that really jump into the, you know, very, very technical part. But we have a lot of community. And one more thing that I don't really like on among the community that doesn't have so many women in Malaysia is if you are in the community that majority are male, uh, then 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 it's very difficult for you to, you know, be very active there. <laughs> yeah. So like I, I, like I'm also managing two communities. So I have the R user group Malaysia. Then I also have a TensorFlow group um, um, Malaysia and Deep Learning Malaysia. So for the R user group Malaysia, we actually formed a new chapter recently, a few months ago. We have the Malaysia R ladies uh, group. So hopefully with that, uh, we actually know we want to encourage more people to actually join uh, the community because like you said, uh, if a community is very male dominant, 
it doesn't it will not attract the female to join the group because they don't feel that they are, they are the group is actually inclusive of them. So, yes, correct. So that's one thing that uh, that's uh, that we're trying to do. So coming back to the communities just now, I think this is something that also I share with one of the community leader in Singapore. So Singapore also have a very good uh, this uh, deep learning and uh, machine learning group. And they are facing the same problem. Whenever they try to go beyond the basic, go beyond the, the, the fundamental of machine learning AI, they want to do a bit more technical or they want to discuss a paper. Then, like you said, nobody joined. But then, I mean, if, <laughs> if, if, if for, for a country, uh, starting from the beginning, where they have uh, no, nobody is doing any machine learning, that's fine. But after four, five, four or five years or six years, people are still you know, talking about the, the basics. Then when are we going to progress? That's something that we need to think about. So I think like what you said, uh, we can we, 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 we want to cater for the beginners, fine. But after so many years, how come we're still talking about basic machine learning? Why can't we do, do more technical stuff and talk about more advanced topics? So, so why can't we do that? Yes, <laughs> actually, in Women in AI, I tried to actually uh, suggest to them, why don't we have like a paper reading mind? Meaning it's like we take up any paper on machine learning or deep learning and then we just... How uh, and you know like a, a panel discussion on all this paper we just brainstormed this paper about uh, but then no one interested <laughs> so I was very disappointed so I was thinking like uh, maybe someone in data science group Malaysia want to do it I think Dr. Poo you can start that I really like you know like actually I joined a lot of like very big conferences in machine learning uh, like ICLAR, ICML, New Reefs because as a woman in developing country we can get the ticket free of charge, FOC. So that's very nice. And then, and then, so when I joined there, it was like very rare to see Malaysian. And then it's very like, you know, it's very technical somehow. And then sometimes I don't really have time to go through all of the papers. So I was thinking like, if we can have, you know, one session at least to just dig one very nice paper, like recently we have the DALI, right? But most of the Malaysian, they don't really understand what is DALI. So why don't we just try to dig on the paper of the DALI and then like, you know, sit together and just brainstorm on this instead of like going to what is machine learning and AI? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I think uh, I think after managing this community for so long, I, I actually kind, kind of has a glimpse of what is the root cause of the problem. I think, I think the first thing is people are very afraid of the mathematics. Whenever they see the paper with mathematics, they're like, oh, their mind is totally closed. I don't want to know the mathematics. I just want to know what is the usage and how can I just use this? If it can be drag and drop, I will be more happier. <laughs> That's one thing. Second thing is people do not have this research mindset. No? They don't want to think about research. No? <laughs> they say, oh, if I want to be a researcher, I will just uh, leave it for the people who do research at like PhD or master's students. I'm not a researcher. So I think this, with these two things that they're not uh, they're not. Uh, uh, open to, you know, to see even a small mathematical formula and also the research mindset is very, very difficult to go and have you know, this kind of a discussion where you talk about papers. Because when you open a research paper, especially AI, definitely a lot of math inside there. At least a lot of mathematical formula. Yes, yes, correct. Yeah, it, that, that just happened to me when I first joined industry actually. When I want to present my results, it was like, you know, we'll start with methodology, right? So the methodology is all about mathematics and people start to feel very bored. It was like, what, what is this PhD <laughs> <laughs> talking about? <laughs> and I was like, ah, okay, okay, I stopped the mess. Okay, this is the result. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just show me, show me what's the result. Okay, so so that, that, that's the thing. Yes, yes. 
Yeah, so I think we 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 kind of understand the common problem, especially I think from your background with the uh, research background with the PhD, I think you understand you no know, where do people come from, especially because if a country would want to progress, especially especially in AI or any technology field, there must be some research research element because R and D you cannot run away from R and D. Yes. So the research right. mindset is very important. That's why people do people hire a researcher with a you know a master holder or PhD holder. Why? Because they want people who have research background and they can think like a researcher, which is very important. Yes, yes. Uh, like what I did currently. I think now I try to reduce the amount of maths in my presentation. <laughs> <laughs> I try to make sure that I speak in a very level term. So that's why whenever I have a discussion, I always ask them, do you understand what I'm trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> but this is very important as a data scientist. Because data scientists, you cannot just throw, throw all the maths to them. You want to show them what is your insight and then make them understand. That's also very important. Yes, yes, correct. Okay, uh, I have three more questions. The, 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 what, the first question is, uh, what is the current progress of AI or ML technology that you are most excited about? Especially now you're working in this uh, social media field where you apply a lot of AI. Field, I think I have a lot of field that I really interested about. I think like two years ago, I was very interested on federated learning which is very difficult to understand. <laughs> and that was after that, after that, I move, I think, uh, I move now, I think I'm quite more interested to the auto ML because I can see that, yeah, you know, Malaysia is like this, right? We don't really have, not Malaysia, lah, most of the people, like we have a lot of certificate of data science, like people jump from another field and then become data scientists. So they're not really the hardcore software programmer or whatsoever, right? So they don't really understand programming. So I was thinking like, I first heard about the word AutoML actually two years ago, I think during a conference, I was very curious, what is this AutoML? What people are talking about, like you are, now you, when you want to tune hyperparameter, you need to try one by one. But actually in AutoML, you don't need to, you don't need to tune hyperparameter. There is an algorithm, a search algorithm that will search the best hyperparameter. So I was very interested in this field actually. And then until now, I'm still looking uh, at this research. And then in my previous company in ST Microelectronics, I have one uh, colleague that is graduated uh, from uh, PhD also in the field of AutoML. So they are doing the search ranking for this uh, AutoML features. Lah. I was like, so this is my most exciting uh, field. Other than that, the one that I really uh, would like to explore more is explainable AI. Because explainable AI is very difficult for us, especially those in the technical field when you want to explain to people. When people ask you, how come your machine learning model gives this result? And we cannot explain. And explainable AI is not really that easy unless it's just a binary tree. Binary tree is very easy to, to make people understand. But if it's go down deeper to any other, you know, like especially deep neural network, the CNN, how you want to tell people, okay, in traditional image processing, this is how you actually recognize the image. But CNN will do it for you automatically. The people will ask how they do it automatically. It's okay, a black so box, is it? Yes, it's a black box. They, they, the only thing that you can tell them, okay, it's a black box. You need to trust this black box. That's it. <laughs> okay. Do you think the stakeholders is going to buy that? Of course not. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So the last uh, two questions I would uh, want to ask, you know, picture for your mind is uh, what do you look for if you want to recruit the AI or ML engineer? What are the traits that you actually think is very important? 
Okay, okay. So I actually interview a lot of like ML engineers before this, right, to be someone under me. And then the first trait, okay, it's very different between data scientists and ML engineer. If a data scientist, I want people that have more data mindset. Means like they know what the data want. And then if they come from a different field, like for example, they are not really a computer science graduate, but they want to jump into a data science, then they can become a data scientist. But if I'm recruiting the AI or ML engineer. I want someone from the computer science background because you need to do heavy programming. And then the next thing is the ability to research because usually your model is not going to perform well. So when the model is not going to perform well, which one do you should you blame first, the data or your model? Uh, so usually people will start to blame the data, but I always go to the model first and then I will go deep all of the research paper. I will see what is the latest uh, machine learning model, how they tune it, and I will imitate the same thing, lah, reproduce the same thing. And then, and then after that, I will go to the data. Then I will blame the data. Because if you want to blame the data, you are going to blame the data collector. Then you need to deal with another people. So before you blame other people, you blame yourself first. Lah. <laughs> so for me, that is the person that I want to look like if AI, ML engineer, programming, and of course, uh, communication and other than that is, of course, want to do the research. Like, means like you have the ability to do research. Okay, that sounds interesting because I, I, I also interview many people. It's very, very difficult to find people with the research mindset. <laughs> because uh, especially I will, I will I, to be honest I also have interviewed people who have PhD and even a master I I was surprised that uh, they have graduated with the PhD and master they don't even have a proper research mindset that, that is very surprising to me <laughs> so, like, so that's why I was saying that uh, you are looking for people research mindset in general even more difficult <laughs> yes, correct. So sometimes I put up in the job scope as well, like you need to be able to understand the research paper. So meaning that during your studies, you already go through all this research paper and you can understand and you are able to reproduce that. Yeah, so I think that's why for especially for bachelor's students, that's why you need to do final year project, you need to do a thesis. And then your thesis, there are chapters that you need to do written review. That's the purpose of that. You go, yes. They forced you to read some papers and to understand the papers and then to see how the papers, the, the technique that has already been uh, uh, researched, how they can actually you know, be used in your, in, your, in your final project. That's something very important. Yes, correct. Okay, last question of the day. What is the tips or advice to be a successful AI engineer like you? Any tips that you think, anything okay. that, uh, that you, you hold to, uh, as a principle to yourself that you think that, ah, this is what makes me different from other people? Okay, first of all, I'm not really as successful as Dr. <laughs> That's the most important. <laughs> no, okay, really. but... the, we can't compare. We are different, different, different area. I'm really very old. <laughs> <laughs> okay, for me, I think the most important, uh, okay, the characteristic I think was like that other people doesn't have is passion. I would say passion. So because I jumped from a different field to another field, and then I was like, I tried every other, you know, uh, field uh, major as well, from manufacturing to now is social media, previously a marketplace. And then I also like jumped into a community was like Corona Tracker, doing the COVID analysis. So basically, everything is a passion. So most of the people, they look for money. Why they want to become a data scientist or AI engineer? This is always happened when I go, I give a talk to other students actually. Most of them, they will just want to have a very nice salary. So that's why all the certificate of data scientists sold out because they think becoming a data scientist will make them rich. But it's actually not like that. You can become rich in whatever field you want to be as long as you have the passion. 
So you can become a very rich businessman. You can become a very rich product manager. You can become a very rich engineer. You can become a very rich doctor as long as you have a passion. So the passion comes first. Like if you have a very nice salary, but you don't have the passion and suddenly you feel very tired, you don't want to do this work anymore. Then you will feel the burnout, lah, exhaustion. So for me, the most important passion. So this is all my message usually to all my student training and everyone that I give talk to. First of all, okay. set your patient. <laughs> okay, I think this is uh, similarly to what I given a uh, talk before. I told them the concept ikigai. I think if you you will know the yes. ikigai. The first thing is ikigai is to you know find what I think that you are very good at. Okay, so if you are very good at uh, uh, playing piano, make sure you are very good at it. So you have to practice, practice, practice until you are very good at it. You know. And the second thing is make sure you find something that you you love to do. No. For example, some people say I love to play uh, football. I love to play football, but play loving to play football and not good at it is just a hobby. <laughs> so you must, you, like you said, you like you like the, the, uh, programming. So you you are you you found something that you're very you, know, you like to do, but make sure you're good at it. Okay. Then after that, then you then you once you found something that you you love to do and something you good at it, then find where that you can contribute. You no, know, something that you think that uh, you help the world or or maybe help society or help. Then you find that the things that you love to do and you are very good at is very meaningful. So that's very important. So I, I think what, like what you said, you can be rich, doesn't mean it's monetary. But once you find something that you are passionate about, then you every day that you do, even do a long hour work, it doesn't feel a work because it's something that you like to do. Then you're happy. <laughs> and then once you once you're happy with what you do, then the monetary reward will come. But make sure you're good at it. Lah. You cannot yes. say I just. <laughs> you, cannot, you cannot say I'm a, I'm a, I'm a programmer like what to do, but then your 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 program sucks and then a lot of bugs or whatever. Then, then you will not be paid good salary, you know. Yes, uh, yes, <laughs> yes. That's the most important passion. Ikigai. Yeah, I forgot this word. Seriously. Yeah, you still you still understand your the Japanese. That's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think uh, we come to the uh, the end of the the time. So I think uh. Oh, we discussed a lot of topics today, just like what you uh, discussed about your working experience. So we jump here and there also. But overall, <laughs> I think uh, we share a lot. Uh, hopefully, my list, uh, the listener out there actually will benefit from the things that we discussed today. So thank you very much for your time. Uh, it's very you know, in, in, interesting that uh, to, to talk to uh, my second female guest of the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting to talk to you, actually. Because I always wonder who is Dr. Pooh because you are very famous. <laughs> when I first come to Malaysia, when I first come to Malaysia, I work in patents. They are talking about, oh, I know this Dr. Pooh. Dr. Pooh is very famous. I was like, who is this Dr. Pooh? <laughs> I know who is the person who mentioned that. He used to he used to be my ex <laughs> uh, no So that's why that's why I was like, okay, so I so this is my I think like this is our first time actually meeting each other virtually. But I really like, you know, very nice to meet you. It's very nice, seriously. And then, yeah, I really hope that I'm not really good at R, so that's why I didn't join your R group. <laughs> I just it's, learned R once, once only. It's okay, it's okay. Nowadays, uh, people do not differentiate really R or Python. If you can, you learn, learn both because in, in, in some way, somewhere, you probably don't need both, you know. Why 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 want to segregate the knowledge? Knowledge is yes, yes. Open. And then yeah, R is much more to the statistic, right? So for those who really on the stats actually will go for R, I think. Mm. But you can also deploy with R, I think. Mm. Yeah, I yeah, you know. can do everything mm. now. You can do everything. Yeah, I also don't know. I just learned for one time. My sensei pushed me to learn it. 
And after that, uh, all my seniors said, don't don't use R. At that time, R is very new. It's 2014, eh, 2013 at that time. Mm. And they said, hey, don't go for R. R is very difficult. You go for <laughs> lab. Or better have paid version. Yeah, so so that's why I was like, ah, okay lah. So I don't learn R. I just learn R a little bit, and after that, I move back to the med lab. Ah. <laughs> that's the history of me learning R. <laughs> okay, Hi, thanks for the time. Nice talking to you. Yeah, nice talking to you too. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to help support the podcast. Please share with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. Follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify Podcasts. If you have any comments or recommendations, I will be glad to receive your voice messages. Send me your voice messages via the link in the show notes. To catch all latest episodes, you can follow this show on our website www.aimldatatalks.com or our social media such as Instagram or Twitter with the handler at AIMLDatatalks. Thanks again. I will see you next time.